Deep indeed is the love of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning once again to Philippians chapter 3. Our text for this morning's sermon is also printed in your bulletins, or you can find it on the uh, on page 981 of the blue Bibles that are in front of you. I say this every week, right? Some variants in the order of those words that I just said. Uh, I, I, I for a while, try to find some creative way to say the same thing every week. Uh, it's not very creative, except the page number changes every once in a while. Uh, the idea here, though, is important. And it is, it's one thing to hear, it is another thing to see the word in front of you. My calling as a preacher is to preach the word. Your calling is to hear the word of God proclaimed and to see this from the word of God and to hear God speaking to you from the Word, so that what goes on now, what goes on over the next half hour, is not merely the words of man going out, but that we would receive this as what it is, the Word of God proclaimed to us, God speaking to us in our lives. So that's why we always print it, or, or we have your Bibles in front of us, so you can see that as well as hearing it as well. Now, as we come to this particular portion of Philippians 3, we come, as we have so many times already in Philippians, to one of these passages that we know pretty well. It's a beloved and a treasured passage. We, I'm sure, all know this passage and enjoy it as well. It is oftentimes taken uh, on its own. It's a little, bit, a little bit out of the context in which it's given by Paul and preached or taught on just using these verses in particular, especially uh, verses 12 through 14. I'll be reading through 16 uh, today. But I think for us, especially as we've been going through the book of Philippians, I would say this always, but particularly because we've been doing that, we want to see this in context today. We want to understand this passage in light of what Paul has been saying throughout this letter in the context of the argument that he's been making. The error that he is correcting, is trying to pro provide at least a firm footing for the Philippians in light of an error that is either there or that may come, or maybe some variant of that. And so in context, what Paul has been doing, especially in the section that we just looked at, is extolling the value and the worth of the most beautiful thing that there could ever be. And of course, the thing is not a thing, but the thing is in fact a person. It is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and the incredible value that is attached to us knowing him, to being found in him, to being partakers of Jesus Christ. Everything else in our lives pales in comparison to that. Everything else in the world either pales in comparison to that or should pale in comparison to it. We've seen Paul using that kind of language, but this is what Jesus says as well when he essentially to his disciples says, listen, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Do you need me to say it? If you need me to say it, I'll say it. Jesus wants us to love our parents, and he wants us to love our children. I'll say it. 
But in comparison to that, in comparison to those loves, which are deep and treasured loves, boy, he wants us to love him more. And that's what Paul has been saying. For Paul, everything pales in comparison, and that includes everything in his life that he formerly valued. We saw this last week. He measured his own standing, how he was doing in life, his standing before men, his standing before God, based on his pedigree and his performance, how he had done at living after God's commands and man's commands and looking good or bad in front of others. But Jesus has come into the world and that has exposed the vanity of all of that, the emptiness of all of what Paul used to do. But in Philippi, there are those who would seek to drag the Philippians back into that kind of a lifestyle. They, they, would, they would like them to be back into a lifestyle that Paul sees as an unsettled, uncertain, joyless religiosity. No real faith at all, and Paul won't have it. He argues, in fact, he says, no, Jesus is all in all. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our confidence. Jesus is, as we saw last week in the concluding verses of the section leading up to this one, Jesus is our justification, which is to say he is the beginning of our Christian life. Jesus is our sanctification, which is to say Jesus is the middle of our Christian life. And he is our glorification, which is, of course, to say that Jesus is the end. He is all in all and by grace through faith. We have come to know the one who is light and who is light from A to Z, from Alpha to Omega, and there's nothing else compared to that. There's nothing else worth knowing. It is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord. Which brings us then up to the passage that I'm reading for us today, wherein Paul, having said that, says in effect here, Lest I be misunderstood. And that's, lest I be misunderstood is this section that we have in front of us. This is the Word of God, beginning at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Lord, we pray then that you would help us, that you would help us to think well about these things, that we would not misunderstand them, that we would understand your word well and seek after you to press on in the things that have been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.
Uh, in this passage, Paul, uh, you're familiar with, with it, has an analogy and illustration that he's using throughout the passage. And of course, it's one that we see in other places and other biblical writers use in other places as well. And of course, it is the illustration of a race straining, using every nerve, every fiber of being to press on towards the goal, to keep running, to win the race. I want to begin today with another illustration uh, that, even like the race illustration, is limited, just so we know. My, my illustration is going to be limited, so is Paul's, because actually several people can win. A lot of people can win if the race Paul is describing here. Not only one person, but several people can also win along with him. So his illustration is limited. My illustration is limited, but I want to talk about uh, fishing. Now, you know, uh, I enjoy fishing. I've admitted that in different ways over the years. I'm no expert angler. I'm not a professional fisherman. I don't go out of my way. I don't own a boat. But when I have the opportunity, I enjoy fishing. And you know the slogan that's on the back of uh, this would be uh, bumper stickers. Sorry. I was going to say what kind of cars are, are, are found on the back of them. Uh, bumper sticker saying that says, you know, a bad day of fishing is better than a good day of work. And I don't know if that's true um, because the reality is when you are fishing, uh, it's nice to catch fish. Um, you know, not, not many people fish in a place where they know there's no fish, or at least if you go fishing there, you don't go for long because there's not much uh, joy in that. There's not a lot of uh, fun in it. You want to catch fish. And so when I go fishing, I want to catch fish. There are three stages of catching a fish. I'm not talking about all of the preparation that goes into it um, or things that come afterwards, but three actual stages to catching a fish. Let's, for convenience sake, call them justification, sanctification, and glorification. And that's what we'll call these three stages of catching a fish. If you like, we'll call it the beginning, the middle, and the end of catching a fish. But in fishing language, the stages of fishing begins with the strike. I should say the stages of catching begins with the strike. And it's exciting when you get a strike because if you've been fishing with a lure and your lure's been out there and you haven't had anything tug on your line, the moment you actually have something strike your lure and, and you feel life at the end of your line, it is an exciting moment in the process. The next stage which we'll call sanctification, is the fight in fishing. It's the fight. It's the, it's the process of getting that fish into or closer to you, to reeling in your line. Now, the strike is significant. You've got to know what to do when the fish strikes. A lot of people, I, I've not fished with any of you, so I don't have to worry about implicating somebody here. But at the strike, they'll get all nervous, and they'll, they'll, they'll yank real hard, and they'll do something, and they'll lose the fish right away. They don't understand what's got to happen there in the process of the strike. In the fight, in the fight, that's part of the joy. And of course, it depends on the size of the fish you've got, the type of the fish you've got on the line, the type of tackle you're using. Uh, if you've got a small fish on really light tackle, the fight in and of itself can be fun, it can be exciting. If you've got your bailer opened up so that even a small fish is taken out line and you're trying to figure it's good stuff and it's exciting to be in the fight. And then of course there's one final part to catching a fish and that is landing it. 
Okay, actually getting the fish and uh, how did I say? Bringing it into the boat, uh, getting it into the net, uh, having the fish in your hand, and then you know giving it a kiss and letting it go uh, is. Uh, I know that fishing isn't uh, your thing, isn't everybody's thing, but I love it. I love the drama that exists in fishing. Every, every time, every catch, every, every fish is a little mini drama. It's got this, this beginning part to it, and then it builds up to this fight and this wonderful crescendo that takes place in the end. And if the fish gets off at any point in the stage, if it, if it, if it doesn't finish in your hand, there's something really disappointing. Now, uh, Nate and I, there are some in this room that I fish with. Uh, Nate and I were having a, a, a tough day fishing one time this summer. And Nate was very diligent, very persistent. And towards the end of the night, he, he got a fish, got it in all the way up, and it flipped off the line right as it came out of the water, right in front of him. Nate caught a lot of fish that day. And I, being a good dad, was trying to be encouraging. I was saying, that counts. That counts when you got it. We weren't going to keep it anyway, so that counts. You got it out of the water, you saw the fish, you got the strike, you had to fight. It's right there. But I was unsuccessful in convincing him because he knew, he knew that it was an incomplete process. That, that as close as that is to actually landing the fish, that the process was interrupted. And as a result, it was frustrating. And it can be frustrating at any point along the way if you do that. You don't just love the beginning of fishing, love the process. And if I could press this illustration just a little bit further, an additional element to it, when you have caught a fish, assuming you like fishing, when you have caught a fish, you don't say, well, gee, that was fun. What are we gonna do next? Let's go someplace else. Let's, you know, we're gonna play Frisbee next. What are we gonna do next? When you have caught a fish, you want more. You don't stop fishing if you're catching fish. Because you want to do it again. You want the drama again. You want more of the joy that is associated with catching the fish. You want to, and now let's bring it into the passive, press on. You want to continue. You don't want to stop because that which you're doing is so fun. It's so joyful. Paul has just told the Philippians that there are a lot of vain pursuits in this world. There are a lot of dead ends. And Paul himself says, basically, he was on a rat race, and it was a rat race to nowhere. He didn't realize at the time that he was racing towards nothing, but indeed he was. He was running. He had a bad, let me say, he had a bad running form, and he was running in the wrong direction towards the wrong finish line, but working really hard to get there and running actually away from the one in whom is life itself. That's the way Paul describes his former self. He had been running away from the Lord and he didn't even realize it until, until in the midst of running, someone grabbed hold of him, laid hold of him, found him, said, you're going the wrong way. Turned him around and Jesus said, now run away. And like a father teaching a kid to swim, kept stepping back. Keep running. Run. 
run towards me. Press on and run towards me now that I have found you. That's what Paul is rejoicing in. Paul has been laid hold of. He has been found by Christ to use the language that is in here like at the end of verse 12. Laid hold of. Jesus has made me his own. He's been brought by faith, by Jesus, into the feast, into the festival of salvation, not by his own efforts, not by his own righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done is full, and it's complete, and it's comprehensive, and it's lacking in nothing. And it makes what Paul had done in his life prior to this point look like rubbish. Look like nothing. Seem like, you know what, I haven't been doing anything at all. And Paul then says to that, don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand what I am saying. That's what sets up this passage. Don't misunderstand me when he says, the goal has not been reached. I haven't made it yet to the finish line. The prize has not yet been awarded. Now, Paul is speaking personally. He's talking about his own race here, but he's applying it to everybody else as well. Brothers, those of you who are watching that, I have not yet finished this race. Or, to use my analogy, Paul would say, I haven't landed the fish. I'm in the fight, but the fish isn't in the boat, or the fish isn't in the net, or in my hand. Now, inexperienced fisherman, young fisherman, thinking of my beloved sister here for a moment, sometimes get all excited at the strike. Okay? If you've never fished before, and you're out fishing, and a fish hits your line, I guarantee you there will be this burst of adrenaline and you will get all excited. And guess what the odds are? Odds are you'll lose the fish. Odds are you'll lose the fish. You won't set the hook at the right time, you'll yank it somehow, you'll pull the hook and lure right out of the mouth of the fish because you get all excited about the strike and forget about the process. You forget everything you've learned. You forget everything that somebody's tried to teach you, and that can be true in the fight of the fish as well. You end up losing the fish. Now, this is going to go back and forth, so bear with me here for a moment. In the context of this passage, part of the operational strategy of the Judaizers, of those who were coming in to the Philippians and say, you've got to act, was to emphasize incompleteness. To say to the young Christian, you have this new faith in Jesus, and that's good. I'm glad that you have this new faith in Jesus. But to Jesus, you need to add fill in the blank. To Jesus, you need to add circumcision. To Jesus, you need to add the observance of the days and the festivals. To Jesus, you need to add a certain set of ascetic practices that will make you more righteous. To Jesus, you need to add 
the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit. To Jesus, you need to add a, a knowledge that you don't presently have, and then you will be complete. Paul, in what he is saying here, is combating any theology that says you need to add something to the work of Jesus. He's argued already that in Jesus is all justification, adoption, and sanctification, glorification. Everything is secured in Jesus. Our salvation is secure. But what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm combating their incompleteness with the idea of completeness in Jesus that you have all you need. You're not lacking anything in Jesus. But don't misunderstand that. I haven't arrived in heaven yet. You haven't arrived either. We are not finished. The full expression of all of these benefits of salvation, which Paul has spoken about, which he's testified to and written about that, the full expression of those benefits of salvation are, in fact, not yet. You have a taste of them. You have a down payment on that which is to be yours. But they are not yet. They've been, though they have already been secured, they are not in our possession yet. And since that is the case, since you're not in full possession of things that have been secured for you and are secured in Jesus for you, then the main verb becomes the thing that Paul says he's going to do, and that will, by implication, characterize the rest of us as well. Press on. Pursue. Things are secure. Your victory in Christ is secure. Your arrival at the finish line is secure in Christ. So, press on. Pursue. You're still running. You're still fighting the fish. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. Don't rest on morals that you actually don't yet possess. Don't get distracted. That's what he's saying here in the race analogy. Don't go looking all around. Don't look behind you. Keep your eyes focused on that which is ahead of you. Don't be dismayed about your own struggles and about the struggles of people around you and opponents who are around you. Remember the Philippians are facing levels of opposition and Paul's trying to comfort them and they see him facing opposition. Don't let that dismay you. Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't become comfortable with the sin in your life. Don't become comfortable with disunity in the body. Don't check out of life in the body of Christ. Don't stop working for, and this will be taking the language from chapter 1, don't stop working for the advance of the gospel. In you and through you. Press 
on. I am pressing on. You should be pressing on. Paul is continuing here themes that we've actually already seen in this letter. On the one hand, what he is saying to them is, be confident. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. That's what's in this section, in these, in these wonderful passive statements that are made here, that Jesus has laid hold of me. That I've been called, and if we want to put it theologically, I've been effectually called by the upward call of God that exists in Christ Jesus. He will complete the work, and on the other hand, what he is saying is so, because Jesus will complete the work, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Press on. Now, let's see a similarity here that exists between Paul and the Judaizers. Both Paul and the Judaizers would have said that on one level, working is good. Pursuing is good. Press on is good. I'm sure the Judaizers, if all they heard was the statement, press on. Yeah. Preach it, brother. That's what, that's what we're saying. We're saying the same thing you're saying. We say press on. You say press on. Press on. We agree with you. Work. But that's it. The perspective from which you work, the way you do your work, the how and even the objective of your work is the thing that is utterly different. Both would have agreed, work, yeah. But everything surrounding it is utterly different. For the Judaizer, their work is characterized by a focus on self. And it flows out of insecurity. And ultimately, when you're focusing on self, on yourself for the sake of what you're doing and you're trying to do good, ultimately what happens is sometimes you feel good about yourself because you've done what somebody else said you should have done or you feel like you've done more than the next person has done. So sometimes you feel good about yourself even though it's a false feeling of self-satisfaction. And for the Judaizer, sometimes you feel absolutely awful about yourself. Because you have no security. And you look at the things that you're doing in your life and the things that other people are doing in their lives, and you come up short. You come up wanting compared to how other people are doing. And it's depressing. And if you really looked at your heart, you would know how far fall, how far short we fall. While on the other hand, the person in Christ, the man or woman in Christ, their work is characterized, and remember, this is what Paul has been saying throughout. The work that they do is not characterized uh, as based on themselves, but it's in the interest of others. The work that they do is not so much how can I make myself feel better or look better, but instead, how do I put the interests of others above mine? That's a totally different perspective on work. Their concern is for the welfare of others. They see joy in the midst of the difficulty. And you can call it they have, when they work, a hopeful faith or a faithful 
hope. And so this work that Paul is describing is a work that's pressing on that proceeds from, in, and unto security in who Jesus is, the person of Christ. If we were to use the language, and it's not here in Philippians, but if we were to use the language of Galatians or Romans to describe the difference between what the Judaizers are saying and what Paul is saying about the nature of the work, it is the difference between how, on the one hand, a slave works and how, on the other hand, a son works. They may be right next to one another in the field. They may be doing for a moment exactly the same work. But there is all the difference in the world between the work of a slave and the work of a beloved son. So this idea that Paul is saying here seems to be reflected in language and perspective throughout Scripture. From the Pentateuch onward throughout, the Christian seeks, we seek because we have been sought and found. We seek to know because we have been known. We seek to love because we have been first loved. We seek to comfort because we have received comfort and been ourselves comforted. We seek to pursue righteousness because righteousness has been credited to us by faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We seek these things then in the secured victory of Jesus, who is the finisher of the race. His example of having run the race and finished the race, and his righteousness then of that credited to us compels us to keep running, to keep fighting the fish, to keep pressing on for present joy, and Paul is concerned that the Philippians experience that present joy, and for the joy that is set before us as well. Keep running. Now, this kind of reasoning, and I recognize it even as I'm preaching it, and you should recognize it as you're reading Paul as well, this kind of Thinking, this kind of theologizing, in fact, doesn't come easily. I said this back a couple of weeks ago. We don't really need false teachers to lead us astray because sometimes old wiring that exists in our hearts and minds, that'll take us astray as well. We'll drift back into these patterns of measuring ourselves accordingly. And so Paul concludes the section that I've just read for us with this exhortation that basically says, think well. If you're going to live this way, you're going to have to think through these things carefully and regularly. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The truth of that good news of the gospel of the way that one pursues these things from the position of security in Jesus, you gotta think through that thing. Your mind has to be in shape to be able to think that way because it's so tempting for us to go back the other direction. 
God is not looking for mindless runners in the race. He wants us to be thoughtful partakers of the gospel and participants in the advance of the gospel. So in conclusion, to press the illustration, uh, Paul's here first. How are you running your leg of the race? This is actually a joint race. It's not one that is ran by us individually or without reference to others who are around us. How are you running? How are you running this race? Are you, are you running it well? Are you running it thoughtfully? Are you straining every nerve in your leg of this relay, pressing on toward the goal of the prize that is set before us? Or, or are you lethargic? Are you complacent in your faith? Complacent in the work? Very selective about where you do the work and where you invest the time. Are you, and I ask this of all of us, and I ask it as well, especially of those, I don't want to say especially, sorry, but of those who are members and children of this church, are you presuming on your pedigree? And are you coasting? Or are you pressing on to know the Lord? Have you owned your portion of this race? Endurance is needed. Perseverance is needed. We have not arrived. We have not crossed the finish line. We have not landed the fish. And you want the fish in the boat. You want the fish in your hand. So, brothers and sisters, let's keep our wits about us, which is to say, think well. And then let's fight. Let's run. Let's persevere for the king and his kingdom. Father, we pray that you would help us to do that. That we would, in the words of the Old Testament, seek after you, set our minds and our hearts to seek after you. That we would press on to know the Lord. That we would look for your blessings and press on in those things. We pray that you would help us do that. Where we have been too passive, too uh, unengaged, disengaged in our walk with you. Forgive us and show each one of us where we need to re-engage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.